Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I'm joined by Professor Roy Seidel, Director of the Mountain Society's Research Institute and a professor in Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Central Asia. He joined me to talk about his new bioscience article, Food Security in the High Mountains of Central Asia, a broader perspective. It was a great chat, and I learned quite a bit about the mountains of Central Asia, of course, and also the people who live there and the challenges that they face. With no further ado, let's go straight to the interview. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, James. I really appreciate this opportunity. Okay, so we'll be chatting about a lot of topics today, but I wanted to start with a quick definition of food insecurity just to sort of you know provide a baseline for our understanding. Let me just kind of turn that around and talk about food security, if, it, if that's okay. Uh, sure. Uh, so food security, at the core of it, it is, ensures that people have adequate and nutritious food for their livelihood support, basically, and that it's it's available all the time. And we take a look at it from a, a little bit different perspective, as you're going to see. But the long, the short answer of that is is basically what I just said. Right. And what you know are the basic challenges in a mountainous region to achieving that sort of food security uh, we don't have to go too in depth now but i'm just kind of curious about what's the what are some of the fundamentally underlying issues so in mountain areas you have more complex climate which we'll talk about a little bit later you have have narrow and sized valleys with very little soil to grow vegetation and because mountain areas they constitute maybe something in the order of 27% of the Earth's surface, and they support about 15% of the Earth's people. Those people that live in mountain areas, by and large, are quite impoverished. So this is a huge issue in mountain areas. Okay, and um, your work is specifically in the high mountain areas of Central Asia. So uh, could you tell us about some of the potentially unique challenges in those types of areas? So this is... Very, very interesting because Central Asia has a kind of gradient of, of elevations going anywhere from less than a thousand meters above sea level up to, well, the highest peaks go above 7,000 meters above sea level. So these are really iconic mountains in this area. We have people living at elevations above 4,500 meters which is, is quite amazing. Um, obviously, not a lot of crops are growing up there. If any, in some places, it's mostly dependent on yak grazing at the lower. So you have this whole stratification going from lower elevation to higher elevation. And the climate associated with those different elevation gradients, the problems in terms of the geomorphology, the problems in terms of hazards, um, in those different areas. So there, it's a, a multiplicity, if you will, of, of different niches that all have their own unique effects on food security. Just for the record, you know, that 4,500 meters above sea level is, you know, very, very high. I think um, I, I personally have rarely been above uh, 4,000 meters and I, I was feeling it, you know, the, yeah. the lack of oxygen. You, you absolutely do. I mean, um, I, I, I took my wife up there for a trip uh, to this one glacier, and we just, it was, we got to about, we got to about 4,600 meters, 
And it was just, it wasn't a real steep climb, but it was amazing. It, we just, it just completely drains your body after, after hiking about five kilometers. Uh, the, the, so thinking people are living up in that area and, and these are tough, tough people that live in these regions. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would also imagine that, um, you know, the amount of institutional support that one would typically expect from a government, perhaps in a, in a, you know, in a Western country, not present. Well, it's not present anywhere in Tajikistan, unfortunately, really. Uh, but especially in that high elevation area, that's it's that's a bit of a political issue, too, because the the people in this Gornabatakashan area, which constitutes a good part of Tajikistan, but it also is a very sparsely populated part of Tajikistan, are somewhat alienated from the from the uh, central government. So most of the support that comes into that area comes from outside donor organizations. And one thing I was curious about is, you know, how much of the food resources in these types of, you know, areas is coming in from the outside versus how much is being, you know, produced or gathered in those spots? So, you know, a very important question. Um, a lot of the small farms, and, and they call them kitchen gardens, actually, is the term that's used for these small farms. And they're usually very small. They're only, they're on average less than two hectares in size. They are the people would actually like to be subsistence farmers, but they can't grow enough food. They typically have big families and they can't grow enough food on these to to support themselves. So some of the food is coming in from the outside. And this is a, a huge issue right now because of costs of fuel escalating, uh, getting food into these areas, the remote areas. The, there's road blockages in the winter with snow avalanches. We're, we're working on that issue in a separate project. So a lot of challenges getting food into those areas, especially in wintertime and early spring. So, yeah, the, the, the key is trying to promote more sustainable production on these small farms and getting more production on these farms. But it's a huge challenge. And what is the typical mode of, of getting resources in and out to the extent that, you know, that's unavoidable? Is it a, is this a helicopter drop situation? Are there roads no. or livestock? No, it's all by road. It's all by road. And um, the, yeah, you'll see livestock walking along the road. And these roads are really in bad, bad condition in most part. Um even the road it goes in the lower elevations all the way up to Dushanbe, which is the capital of Tajikistan. And then if you go in the Afghan side of the Pamirs, it's even worse, uh, as you can imagine. There's roads that are cut thinly cut into the sides of mountains. They have avalanches, they have landslides, they have debris flows all the time that are closing these roads. Um, they make an effort to get in and, and uh, ameliorate that. I actually talked about this in a paper that I wrote in 2000 on, it was published in the journal Sustainability, and it, it was highlighting this Chinese Belt and Road issue, which I think a lot of people in Tajikistan have lauded this as a, as a possible, you know, savior of, of, of getting, you know, economic uh, 
uh, develop an economic corridor, but they're not looking at a lot of the downside effects of this road because um, it's, it, there's going to be a lot of issues with developing these roads and, and the trails that go off of the roads in terms of natural hazards, which hasn't been thought through at all. Right. So, I mean, is it is it simply that the roads will become vulnerable to the same sorts of things that, you know, make road building and maintenance in that area difficult? Exactly. And and there's so, in such remote areas and the 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 uh, ability of the government to provide road clearance, road repair and even good road siding, which something I think is very important. The location of the road is um, it, it's it's a very poor situation. And we've already alluded to it, but these are people who are living and experiencing a, a high level of poverty. A high level of poverty, um, you know, divine, defined by this, what is it, $2.15 a day, a huge percentage of the people are living below that poverty line. So, um, and they exp- this gets kind of unduly uh, burdened upon children who are experiencing malnutrition and stunting. Uh, it also gets unduly burdened by women in the area because it's not as prevalent right now because of the Russian war, but before that, uh, and Ukraine, but before that, there was a lot of migration of the male counterparts into Russia to earn additional salaries. And the women were in charge of the of the farm. So uh, a lot of the burden rests on, on the women's shoulders and a lot of the adverse effects get transferred to children. And this results in, you know, systemic malnutrition where it's a large percentage of the population. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, what sort of, you know, effects does that have on people? You mentioned stunting. Stunting. I mean, stunting is just the children don't achieve the, the height and the body weight that they normally should have. And at, I think Tajikistan is one of the higher area, at least these rural areas of Tajikistan, one of the higher areas in the world for stunting. So it's 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 a major health problem. So you know, you you mentioned that some foods are able to be grown there, but I'm I'm curious about you know um, what sorts of things are grown in those you know the small gardens and what's the soil like? What are the challenges like? I'm imagining this is it's not a warm place. Well, it. There's a gradient. There's a gradient. You go from the lower foothills, which is considered the breadbasket of Tajikistan. And actually, that area is fairly food secure. Um, the Most of the agriculture is grown. It's in larger fields there. But then when you start getting above about 2,000 meters elevation, then you start getting into these incised mountain valleys. So in the incised mountain valleys, it's there. It's amazing country, uh, but you look at the mountainside, and there's a lot of the mountainside. There's no soil on the mountains at all. It's just bedrock. Um, so there's pockets of pockets of soil where some trees can grow possibly, but most of the agriculture is practiced in the valley bottoms. And these valley bottoms are quite constrained because of the deep incision in the mountains. A lot of it's, um, a lot of it is, the areas are are right next to hill slopes, 
So you have landslides, you have rockfall, you have debris flow, you have snow avalanches that all impact these small agricultural areas. And then there's usually a stream or river in the valley bottom, of course, and you get periodic flooding from that. Even things like landslides and snow avalanches will periodically block the river and cause flooding as well. So that's that's another issue. The soils are poorly developed. They have um, very low co- organic carbon in them. So um, the nutrition in the soil is, is quite poor. The soils are not very well developed. They're young soils for the large part. And a lot of them are colluvial soils. Um, one of the one of the things that we really noticed is in these incised valleys, and again, this is where you're probably in the range of about 1,800 meters above sea level up to maybe close to 3,000, uh, where you see the the actual farms and villages developed. A lot of times, they're on what we call debris fans. These are geomorphic events that are caused by a big debris flow that's come down through the mountains and deposited this material. And it's some of the only flat land to produce agriculture. So people put not only practice agriculture in these areas, but they also build houses or they put machinery out there or they have you know farm buildings and so on. And it's a very high risk area. It's a because the next time a debris flow happens, and they happen without warning usually, um, then that whole area gets reset, and anybody in that area gets pretty much decimated. So it's it's a um, a lot of the agriculture is pu- is in in those mid elevation regions, mid to high elevation regions, is practiced on very very hazardous areas. Uh, because of the it's the constant risk of you know rockfall landslides and i would assume snow avalanches as well snow avalanches and and debris flows the debris flows a lot of people call them mud flows i don't like that term but um yeah debris flows landslides sometimes you have a landslide that'll happen it'll trigger a debris flow in a channel so these really high gradient channels that just rush down and and another thing that can happen are glacier-related hazards, where you hear a lot about uh, GLOPs, which are glacial lake outburst floods. Those occur very rarely in the Palmyra, but what does occur more are debris flows that initiate around glaciers. There was one just near where our university was in Harag and Tajikistan, next to the Afghanistan border, that um, occurred because of permafrost melting near the terminal moraine of a glacier, and it caused a series of debris flows that basically wiped out this whole village. Um, the the agri- Not only the agriculture, but all the homes in the village. Luckily, the first debris was a series of debris flows, and luckily the first one was a, a small one, and the people had enough sense to get out of the, out of the area, so no one was actually killed. Yeah, it sounds like a, a very precarious time if you've got, you know, large amounts of ice that's above you and, you know, we are in a warming climate. It, it doesn't sound like a very reassuring situation. Right, right. And, and yeah, you, you talk about climate. I mean, well, we might maybe we want to get into that a little bit later, but that's another really interesting thing, the, the climate trajectories in, in the region. Yeah, let's actually go ahead and talk about it. You know, what's what sorts of things are we already seeing and what sorts of things could be expected? So... I 
really, we're doing quite a bit of work on this. I touched on it in this paper. I didn't go into so much detail, but it's, again, it's not one of these things. Um, it's not a one size fits all um, answer. When you, when you look at it from the standpoint of mountain communities and their food security, you really have to look at the climate what the climate patterns at a granular scale. And unfortunately, in these high mountain areas, well, most high mountain areas of the world, but especially in developing countries, you don't have good meteorological stations at, at, uh, high, at high elevations. So what we've done is taken advantage of the remotely sensed data that's available, recognizing the limitations of that but also recognizing the benefits of that, that it gives you a more general footprint of, of what climate ch changes or climate trends, I should say, probably, because it's only, you know, we only have really reliable data from that from about 20 years. So we look, we, we see in the Western part of, of the, the foothills of the Pamirs and like Western Tajikistan, we see actually some positive things happening in the last 20 years, more rainfall um, and actually warming is not happening that much there, uh, surprisingly enough. So there's not that much warming. So that would actually bode quite well for agriculture, except for potential spring flooding. So that that's the one downside. When you get up into the, the mid elevation range, then it's a different story. It becomes very, very uh, specific. Some of the areas are, all of the areas pretty much from central to eastern Pamir are warming. Uh, some to a great extent down in the Wakhan Corridor in Afghanistan. In the central Pamir, there's some areas that are warming a lot. The precipitation pattern is quite complex. In fact, if you look over the glaciated areas, some of the some of the precipitation, and again, it's mostly snow there, is actually increasing quite a bit. So that's a good thing. But but that coupled with the warming temperatures is kind of keeping the glaciers at somewhat of a quasi-equilibrium in terms of their mass balance. Not all of them, but 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 quite a few of them. Yeah, that sounds like there are a, a numerous interacting factors there. Um, so many. Yeah. So what's the water situation like since we were just talking about that? You know, um, does the, the agriculture that is done, does it have to be um, irrigated? Is, does it rain and snow a lot or is it mostly, you know, winter snowpack that then melts? What's kind of the situation? So the agriculture in Tajikistan is it's something like 92% of the agriculture is irrigated. So the reason is the summers are dry all over. Um, they're less dry in Western Tajikistan, where I said the breadbasket is. That has the best um, uh, infrastructure. It has the best access to water, and it has the best climate in terms of delivering water. So then is, as you go up in elevation, you tend to get less and less and less precipitation, except for a few anomalous areas like over the Fedchenko Glacier, which is the the largest glacier, non-polar glacier in the in the world. Um, so, but in general, in areas where food is grown or where pastures are, where livestock are raised, once you get up into the high Pamir and eastern the eastern Pamir, um, up around you know close to four thousand meters above sea level to higher, it's 
almost an Arctic desert. So it's very, very dry, and the summers get almost, there's, we look, if, if we can trust the remote sensing data, we looked at individual months in that period, and there's very few areas that get any measurable precipitation at all. And if it is measurable, it's probably coming as snow, even in the summertime. So that's that's very interesting. In the mid-elevation area, which is where you have all these kitchen gardens and, and you do have some productive agriculture, although it's stressed, one of the biggest problems there is the it's it's dom the precipitation is is somewhat dominated by snowfall. There's quite a, still quite a bit of rain. There's some areas where it looks like you're getting less snow and more more rain now, but other areas the other way around. Um, the biggest problem in that region is the year-to-year -year variability of the snow water. That's a, I mean we we plotted that out in a I think there, there's a there's a graph of the precipitation variability over the over the 20 year period, but we've also done this just for snow and it's highly variable from year to year. This means this is the biggest source of summer water, early summer water for agriculture. And it means you really need to understand what's happened in that winter and early spring in terms of your snowpack, not just the amount of snow, but the, the water equivalent of the snow to, to, to estimate if you're going to have enough water to irrigate your crops. So that would be a case in a, in a relatively you know high snow year, you're not getting the precipitation, but you've got the snow melt that's coming down slope and um, can be used to irrigate. But if it's not, if it hasn't been there, if you don't have the water equivalent. Yeah. yeah. Then you're, if, if you have a, and I spent five winters in Harag and Tajikistan. Each one of those was different. One year we had, one year we had, a really large wet snowpack. Another year, we had a, a very shallow, drier snowpack. Another year, we had a late snow that came that was wet, but er before that, very little. Each year was different. Each year was different. And if you look at the, we you know, if we look at this remote sensing data, it's incredibly variable from year to year. This, again, it presents a huge challenge for irrigation water supplies, not just in these small communities. These, these streams feed the two big river systems in that region, the Ponch River and the and the Vashk River, which flow into the Amodaira, which go out through Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan on out to the Aral Sea. So everybody downstream is affected by that, as are the hydropower stations that the Tajikistan has two huge, huge hydropower stations. One of the the highest head hydropower stations in the world um, uh, on the uh, Vashk River. So it has an effect on that as well. With apologies for the U.S. framing, but it's it's my frame of reference. Um, is the is the variability in the amount of precipitation, um, you know, similar to what we think about when we think about you know the Sierras, for instance, having a very high snow year, or is it even greater in this in this area? I, I think it's even greater. I think it's even greater um, because you'll you know you'll have years where really there's very very little snow. 
very little snow. And then other years where it's a huge amount. And the water content is is variable. Whereas in the Sierras, my sense is that it's a drier snow usually. It's just variable. But when you're talking about water release from a snowpack, it's the snow water equivalent. I mean, you can have a snowpack that's a meter deep that has one uh, a 10%, 10% uh, water content in it, which is not atypical of a, of a high mountain dry region. But you can, in our areas, you can have a snowpack that has maybe 30%. Uh, so you get three times the amount of water out of that similar depth of snow. So yeah, it's, it's I, I would say, I haven't ever, I, I've worked in a lot of different areas of the world. I've worked in Alaska, I've worked in, in Utah, um, a lot of snowy regions, uh, Japan. I think this area is quite, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it, it's unique in some ways, but it's very, it is very different. It is very different. Um, um, and, and the variability, I think, is much greater than other areas that I've seen in the world. Right. Let's have, we've talked about some of the challenges that, you know, the people living in this area are facing. Um, let's perhaps chat about some of the ways that they might be ameliorated. Um, you lay out in this article, you know, a, a series of approaches that could be taken to um, improve the conditions. What, what sorts of things could be done to address some of these issues? So I think, you know, the first thing you have to do is look at what you can do and what you can't, what the, what the, const, what the stressors I call them are, or the constraints are, what you can fix and what you can't fix and everything in between those two. And where, you know, as, as the saying goes, where you're going to get the best bang for your buck um, in terms of supporting these livelihoods uh, for, uh, for food security. So, one of the things, um, it, it really, again, depends on the area you're looking at. Let's start at the, in the foothills where you have this larger agriculture. It's not as big of a problem there, but, but there's, some, there's some huge issues. Um, one of the issues is that the soils in that region, instead of being shallow like they are up in the mountains, they're very deep, lust soils, uh, silty soils that are wind-deposited soils over long, long periods of time. They have very little structure, but and they're they're some of the most productive soils in the country by far. The problem with those soils is that they're very prone to surface erosion, and some of the mismanagement. Of, of irrigation that started in the Soviet era um, has really exacerbated that that gully erosion. I've been to some areas in that in that part of Tajikistan in those foothills where I would estimate that 20 to even 25 percent of wide swaths of land area are unproductive now and in gullies. Some of these gullies are unbelievable. They're they're many, many, many meters deep. Um, and then you have, when you go up into the, in a little further up into the mountains where you have the soft glacial fill, you get down cutting through that. That's a kind of a natural gully. And that is uh, also really, those gullies are huge. Those are some, some of those gullies are more than a hundred meters deep. So that's one problem there. So you can do something in terms of, soil and water conservation measures, 
to try to improve agriculture to reduce gully erosion. That's um, contour farming is one thing. Terracing, I don't, I'm not a big advocate of terracing because it, unless it's on very gentle terrain, because in steeper terrain, it can actually cause landslides to happen. Um, but getting good cover crops on there, even agroforestry in some of the areas, that's going to, that's going to be a good thing. Getting trees together with um, agricultural crops. When you get into the mid elevation region, then we have, you know, the challenges become quite different. Um, there you're looking at these small gardens and how do, how do you make them more productive, particularly in the summer droughty uh, season. So one of the things that we could do there would be employing um, a very primitive type of drip irrigation, which is probably the most, most of the irrigation that occurs in Tajikistan, sadly, is very water wasting. It's flood irrigation, and a lot of the water is lost in, in poor, poorly constructed and leaky channels that get to the agricultural fields. And then on top of that, when it's applied, it's applied either as flood or furrow irrigation, which is probably one of the most water-wasting irrigation methods around. So if you can use something like in, in, you know, in the kitchen gardens, like drip irrigation from a gravity-fed system that doesn't require pumping energy, that could be one thing. Um, the Another thing is trying to in, uh, reintroduce in some of these degraded lands um, native native vegetation because actually the people prior to this and this was another one of the legacies of the of the soviet era um i think people got away a little bit from from using some of the native vegetation that they had before that they had de depended on and and they had all these uh you know i had a lot of subsidies during this period which they as soon as the breakup of the soviet union all that went away and uh, all the infrastructure that was put in for irrigation started to deteriorate. The Tajik government didn't have money to replace it. So thinking, you know, to use native vegetation again, especially in these isolated regions, not only for themselves, but also some of this could be marketed in a, with, you know, smart value chain development. So that's, you know, I think that's one, I'm just picking out a few examples. Then when you get get up to the high Pamirs above four thousand meters, one of the one of the things there is uh, heating homes. This is these people live incredibly tough lives, and what a lot of people are doing are the shrub collection where they go out. There's this one native shrub that they go out and they completely uproot the shrub and they use that for fuel. That tends to degrade the land. There's different schools of thought on how important that land degradation is, but I think most people would agree it, it, it's, it, it's important. And the other thing there is the overgrazing. Um, trying to understand, get people to understand that, you know, putting more and more yak, it's mostly yak grazing, so putting more and more yak on these lands is not a good thing. It's going to eventually reduce the grazing capacity of the site, which is really low already. 
and make some of the areas really unsustainably productive. So um, I think those are just a few things. There's many, many other things that, that we could do. Um, uh, from a social side, there's a lot of a- aspects too that could be addressed. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. So I was picking up a trend of restoring past practices. Was there a time before you know um, the Soviet Union when these areas were more sustainable? Do we know? Yeah, that's difficult to say. I, I I've read some of the, yeah, I've read some of the older works, and there's always been problems in these areas, especially the eastern Palmyra, the high elevation. I mean, this area. If, if you'd ever see this area, I mean, these people have always lived on the cusp of poverty. It, there's, it's, it's such a tough area, but all of these external pressures had obviously had an effect on it, including the recent ones, including, including even, you know, the, the, the Ukraine war where extra wheat is not coming into the country. Um, the COVID issue actually caused a lot of, uh, monetary issues in turn uh, devaluation of the currency uh, occurred at the same time. And then on top of all that was the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan, which is, I mean, we were living right on the Ponj River and you could look out our living room window and see this little village in Afghanistan. That was a kind of sad way to wake up every morning to see this. Absolutely. I can only imagine. Um, so we've talked somewhat about the various organizations that have done things with the hope of supporting the people in this area that have been unsuccessful. Um, but I'm wondering now about the donor communities and those who are interested in providing support now. How are they doing? Is it working successfully? Are there more things to be done? What's that landscape like? So the organization that I, our parent organization is the Aga Khan Development Network. And they're probably one of the more active kind of organiza- donor organizations and although they depend on they depend on money coming from like GIZ or the EU uh, USAID things like that we've had projects with all of those that through those networks um, so I think you know in general they're trying to do the right thing I would argue that sometimes they don't have, the long-term sustainable vision or a broad enough vision to, to address some of these things. And this is why I wrote this paper on, on food security. This is exactly the reason to, to draw some interest. And, and interestingly enough, the Aga Khan Development Network, the Aga Khan, they, they have a lot of different factions to it. The Aga Khan Foundation in, in Tajikistan really picked up on this and liked it. And they invited me a month ago to the United Nations Water Forum in New York City, where I gave a small presentation at the forum on on um, this whole land degradation issue. So that was, I, I think, in some way, I, I got some good feedback on that. You know, in research, we always have this, we always have this issue of like, okay, we're out there we're trying to do things and there's this disconnect with reality with the on the ground implementation we try to break that with our group we do very applied research in central asia i'm not saying it all gets applied by a long stretch 
But I think this is something that has hit a chord, and I think some people are going to start to listen to this. Uh, the one thing that I, you know, I, I recommended in in the paper uh, at the end of the paper was trying to develop like a, a, an expert system that could actually tease out which of the stressors are more important and other stressors, some of the feedback loops of the stressors that could inform uh, some of the amelioration strategies, planning, mitigation, coping mechanisms, which ones are more important and which ones you can't do anything about. So um, that hopefully that hits, I, I'll keep, working on that. I'll keep working on that for the next couple of years. No, that sounds very pragmatic and valuable. Um, I'm wondering, you know, it's sort of a, a last area to, to chat about a bit would be, you know, how did you come to be in Tajikistan doing this research? Um, you know, what's the what's the career arc that gets you, you know, uh, 4,500 meters up into uh, up into the mountains? Yeah, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't a career arc, I would say. I, I would say it was a it was a personal decision. Um, I had worked I had a very, very nice career. Um, I worked at some of the best universities in the world. I was a professor at at Kyoto University for quite some time. I was a professor and chair at UBC in Vancouver. Um, And a long career with the government, including, I think I mentioned that I was the director of a national lab for US EPA in Athens, Georgia. I just felt... I was working in Australia at the time. I moved around a lot. I was working in Australia at the time, and I just felt like, okay, I've got a few good years left. Um, I'd like to do something. I'd like to give something back. And I'd like to do something at the last part of my career, based on my work in mountain environments for most of my career, that would benefit these areas. Um, So bringing good science into the area and trying to use that to benefit practice in the region. So that was that was my goal. I, it's been almost five years now, four and a half years to five years that I've been there. Uh, I'm now. This is probably going to be my last year, but um, at least as a director of Mountain Society's Research Institute. But I'm I'm happy with what my group has done. They've come a long ways in the in the time that um, the four years, four and a half years I've been there. Well, I, I would like to thank you for joining me today. This has been fascinating to hear about, and I'm sure our readers uh, have and will continue to enjoy the article. Thank you so much. Thank you, James. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.